have a copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Genesis 10 and then most of Genesis 11 this morning as uh, we are actually preaching. I'm preaching the concluding message in our study on the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. Uh, We called it In the Beginning. It's been one of my favorite studies that I can remember preparing for and and preaching through in in a very, very long time. And and I hope that you guys have been been just as blessed in in your studies and your small groups and on these Sunday morning services. And hopefully that you've all grown and learned uh, why these first 11 chapters in Genesis, as I've said from the very beginning, these are so important, so essential, so foundational for everything that we believe. Almost every um, essential doctrine of the faith, of the Christian faith, is rooted right here in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so today will be our concluding message uh, in this. I know many of our small groups will continue to go through the lessons that were provided. And so you guys hopefully will be able to continue to dig in a little bit deeper on Sunday mornings. If you're not part of a small group, guys, I really, truly encourage you to please consider. We have some excellent teachers uh, it's a great way to build relationships, a great way to have Christian community, a great way to be discipled and go deeper in the Word of God. And so I encourage you to find out. We have uh, a list of small groups in our foyer. Um, you can uh, email anybody on the staff about our small group ministry and how you can get connected. And so I encourage anyone who's not yet taken that next step, you're missing, you're missing a whole lot. If, you just, if you're just participating on a corporate level on Sunday morning, you're missing so much w- without being part of a small group ministry. So I definitely encourage you to be a part of that as well. Uh, the last thing about this is that we do have digital copies of all 24 lessons uh, in this study uh, for the book of Genesis. And so if you have not received those digital copies, we tried to send those out to the whole church through email. And if you have not received that, Feel free to shoot me an email at any time, and I can forward the digital copies to you as well. So if anybody's wanting to go deeper on their own or share it with other people, I encourage you to do that as well. All right, so today we're going to get in to Genesis 10 uh, and move into the Tower of Babel. And the reason that we have to start in Genesis 10 is because Genesis 10 introduces us to a, 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 a mysterious character by the name of Nimrod. And so today we're going to look at Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. What was really going on there? So last week we had an opportunity to really dig into the Table of Nations and why the Table of Nations was so very important for us understanding the human race, the origin of the nations, the the reason that there are different languages and dialects around the world and and how the the Bible provides the true historical context for, for all of those things and how at our time uh, in our day and with the culture and, and all of the, the racial tensions that are surrounding our uh, cultural climate today, I felt like last week was very appropriate that we needed to hear a message that there's one race, there's one blood, and we understand that through all of these original 70 nations, the entire globe was populated and the Lord allotted the different nations and boundaries according to their languages and that's where the origin of the nations uh, begins. And so today as we get a little bit deeper into Genesis chapter 11, we're going to find out what was the root cause of for the purpose of the Lord scattering and dividing the nations up. So we're going to have a more of a detailed account here in Genesis 11 and it really begins with this interesting character by the name of Nimrod. So let's look at Genesis 10. We'll jump off into verse 6. And I'm going to read a few verses here in Genesis 10:6. Now, one of the things that you'll notice when you're studying the first 11 chapters of Genesis is that it is a very general uh, description, a very, very general information mostly is provided. It does not go into great detail uh, in the first few chapters of Genesis, which means that if any special attention is given to someone in the Scriptures, especially in the first 11 chapters, we should what? We need to pay attention. And so Genesis 10 is the table of nations, and for some reason that we'll see here in just a minute, this unique character, Nimrod, is given special attention. That's why we're giving him special attention this morning. Genesis 10, verse 6, the sons of Ham... Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And then the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Septicah. 
and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. And then verse 8 says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And for the, you guys out there who love to hunt, that's not exactly what he's talking about there. So if you, if you like to get up in a deer stand and hunt, that's not what Nimrod, he's not dressed in camo up in a, in a climbing stand, okay? He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. We're going to unpack what that means here in just a second. And the beginning of his kingdom, so he has a kingdom. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then it goes on to say, Eric, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. He went on to build, uh, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. And so that is the, the special attention that we see here given to this interesting character, Nimrod. So who is Nimrod? Okay, why does Genesis 10 give him special attention? Well, let's go through a couple of things that I think are going to be important and interesting to you as they were to me this morning. Nimrod was a rebel king. Okay, now you may read some interpretations. There are a few commentaries and scholars out there who really try to paint Nimrod in a positive light. They say this guy was a good guy. I think everything in the scripture that we know about Nimrod actually teaches the exact opposite. And I'll tell you why here in just a minute. Nimrod was a rebel king who was attempting to establish an evil empire on earth in which the name of his empire was Babylon. Okay, and we, we're going we're gonna to unpack a little bit more about what that means, Babylon, the significance of Babylon in the scriptures. But let's talk about Nimrod for, for just a second. Why do I believe that the scriptures teach that Nimrod was a rebel? Okay, he was a rebel king. He was not a good guy. He was a bad guy. Okay, well, the first reason is that his name, the name Nimrod in the original Hebrew means the rebel. I think that's a pretty good indicator. So if you, if you do some word studies and you look up the original Hebrew, that the original Hebrew name him, Nimrod can be taken two different ways. As a personal noun, it, is, it means the rebel. Okay, so his name literally means the rebel. Or you can use it kind of as in verb form, and it means we shall revolt or we shall rebel. Okay, and so we see that this guy was not a good guy. He was the first, the scriptures say that Nimrod was the first to become a mighty man on the earth. Now, if you've, if you've done this study with us from the beginning, that should trigger something in your mind. It should trigger what happened back in Genesis chapter 6. Because in Genesis chapter 6, we find out about this this rebellion, this defection from heaven as the sons of God took the daughters of men, violated them, and took them as wives. They conceived, they gave birth to these hybrid giant Nephilim beings. And guess who the Nephilim were called? They were called what? Mighty men. They were men of renown. They were mighty men. They were these powerful, supreme rulers and tyrants. They devoured the inhabitants of the earth. And so when you're reading the scripture, and again, in Genesis 11, and in the first early chapters of Genesis, we need to pay careful attention to these key words, okay? So there was something unique about Nimrod that the author of Genesis, which I believe is Moses, he wanted you to connect Nimrod to who? The Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. Now, does that mean that Nimrod was a giant? I don't know. But I do know this, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. The authors of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translated Nimrod as a what? A giant. It says Nimrod was a giant. He was the first to become a giant on the earth after the flood. He was a giant hunter, this mighty hunter on the earth. And so whether he was a giant or not, I'm not going to go into all of the debate about whether he was or not, but I just know one thing. He was supremely powerful. He was dominant. He began his own kingdom. He obviously had influence over all of the other people of the earth. He was a king. He was a tyrant. He was a rebel. And so we begin to get a better picture of who Nimrod truly was. Now his kingdom began at Babel, and it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, if you, again, looking at it from, a, from the Hebrew original text, that text really would be better translated as this. He was a mighty hunter in the face of God before the Lord. Basically, in defiance, in the face of God, he was out hunting. Now, was he hunting animals? Maybe. Was he hunting people? Probably. 
Again, this, this idea of being a tyrant, a ruler, someone pursuing other people, bringing people under his power and his control. So I believe that's a better picture of who we are looking at here when we talk about this character, Nimrod. Here's something else interesting. If you look at the two primary places of his kingdom, it's Babylon and Assyria. Guess who were the two primary enemies of Israel in the Old Testament? Babylon and Assyria. That's the land of Mesopotamia. Okay, if you look at some old maps, Mesopotamia means the land of two, between two rivers. And so the Tigris and Euphrates River flows right there, which is basically modern-day Iraq. And Babylon was there more in southeastern Iraq, and Assyria was more up in the northern, northwestern portion of Iraq. And, and so those were the, the foundations of his kingdom. And there's no, uh, there, there's no mistake that where Nimrod's kingdom began, those places emerged as hostile pagan enemy nations that came against the people of God historically. And so there is a connection there, guys, and we have to make sure that we're drawing those connections. Now, let's talk about this for just a second. If you've ever done any study in paganism, occult belief practices and rituals and those kind of things, here's something that you're going to find real quick. And again, I'm going to tell you in just a minute why you have to be careful about doing this. But the occult people who are practicing black magic and witchcraft, people who are pagans, guess who they have a fascination with? Nimrod. They have a fascination with the person of Nimrod. Now, I want to caution you, because if you're like me and you like to get on YouTube or you like to read articles on the Internet, I'm telling you guys, you can go down a very deep, dark rabbit hole when you start chasing these connections of pagan myths that are connected to Nimrod, and why do they have such a fascination with the character of Nimrod? Because again, their historical concept of Nimrod may not have anything to do with the biblical concept of Nimrod. So what we have to always begin with and start with is not pagan myths or legends of a cult and those kind of things. we got to start with what? We start with the Word of God, and then we work our way from there, and we can look at outside sources and, and compare and contrast them. But I do want to give you a little bit of a background as to why Nimrod was such a, is a fascinating character in pagan mythology. Let me give you some interesting ideas. So let me tell you how most of these myths, and I'm going to tell you why this is important in just a second. Most of these pagan myths who um, involve Nimrod... This is how the basic story goes. They believe Nimrod was the original king of Babylon, or Sumer, ancient Sumer, and he had a harlot for a wife named Semiramis. So she's a prostitute, he's the king, they're married, he dies. He goes to become the god of the sun. Well, Semiramis, his wife, announces herself to be the queen of heaven. So she, she, she basically announces deity upon herself, and then she said she conceived by the power of the sun god, Nimrod, who came back into her, and she conceived supernaturally and bore another son, who was basically Nimrod reincarnated, who came by the name of Tammuz, who just so happened to be born on December the 25th. And so you can see, and I'm not, I'm not going to go down those rabbit holes, but you can see that all of pagan mythology and all pagan religion is going to have these very similar characters. There's going to be a sun god, a moon goddess, and some type of a sun that's born to them, and he's usually born around the winter solstice, which is December 25th. And so they begin to incorporate these things in these pagan myths and in the pagan ritual occult worship, and so they call Nimrod by many different names. And again, you can go as, as far down into the rabbit hole as you want to go. But I just want to bring some of this stuff to your attention. It's because that is the foundation. That's why Babylon is said to be the mother of harlots. And that, that the mystery Babylon, we're going to see here in a little bit in the book of Revelation, mystery Babylon is called the mother of all harlots, the mother of all religious idolatry, and so we can trace the origin of pagan idolatry all the way back to Babylon, primarily to Nimrod and his original kingdom and the Tower of Babel that we'll see in just a minute. And so that's why the pagans have such a fascination with sun worship and moon worship 
and worshiping the elements and the stars and the moon and all those kind of things because that's where all of this really came from. And so the Babylonian mystery religions that has infiltrated and influenced all the other pagan religions on the earth originated, at least to some extent, with this guy right here, with this character Babylon. But all we know from the biblical text, guys, is what we can read here in Genesis 10 and also in Genesis chapter 11. Now, I will take it a step further. I do believe Nimrod is a prototype of the Antichrist. And I'll tell you why there are parallels and correlations here, and I'm going to give them to you. Okay? Now, let's think about what was Nimrod attempting to do. Number one, he's the rebel. He's a king. He's establishing an evil empire on the earth that is antithetical. It is opposed. It is adversarial to God. So here's what Nimrod effectively was attempting to do. Okay, and give me a little bit of a latitude here because, again, when you're reading strictly from the text, you have to make some inferences. I'm making a few inferences here. This is my interpretation, but this is what I believe is happening here with Nimrod in the Tower of Babel. Nimrod is trying, because remember, what did the Lord command Noah and his sons to do? Go forth and multiply. Go be fruitful. In other words, be my image bearers and advance my kingdom over the whole what? Over the whole earth. Nimrod said, mm-mm. I'm going to build my kingdom and we're going to centralize my kingdom and we're going to create a civilization here in the middle of this plain of Shinar. And basically what he was doing is that he was concentrating every bit of rebellious energy on the earth in willful defiance and deliberate disobedience to God's word. And that's exactly what the Antichrist will be doing in the last days. It is a concentration of evil. Now, I want you to think about this. This is something that's fascinating to me. And we'll get into why God dispersed the the nations here at Babel and, and some of the other consequences to that. But think about it. If Nimrod had succeeded in what he was attempting to do at Babel, he's trying to collectively bring all of the concentration of evil into one place to defy the Most High God, to build a name and a kingdom for himself. And basically what he was doing is that he was putting the human race back on the path of self-destruction. Okay, that's what Nimrod was effectively trying to do. When the Lord dispersed the nations at Babel, I want you to think about what he did. As he spread them out and dispersed them and confused their languages, basically what he was doing was that he was dispersing and diluting the occult ritual uh, practices of pagan worship. He was spreading that out all over the world to buy mankind a little bit more what? And we'll talk about that in just a second. So why is that Nimrod and a prototype, a picture of the Antichrist? Because let me tell you what the Antichrist will do. Where Nimrod failed, he did not succeed at what he was trying and attempting to do because God intervened. Where he failed, the Antichrist will succeed. He will effectively bring all of the concentration and reunite all of the the collective evil and supernatural, demonic, satanic power in heaven and on earth and under the earth, he will bring it all back what? Together in the end. And he will have authority for a time, three and a half years specifically. And so there is a connection here between the beast or the Antichrist and Nimrod. So he is a prototype. Now listen, as you read the Old Testament scriptures, guys, what you're going to see, there are many types of Antichrist. Pharaoh was a type of Antichrist. Um, who am I thinking about? Pharaoh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a type of Antichrist. Sennacherib, Sennacherib, uh, how do you say his name? Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Thank you, Dean. Sennacherib, the Assyrian invader, he was a type of Antichrist. Haman is who I was thinking about. Haman, think about the story of Esther. He tried to annihilate all of the the Jews. So all of these people are types and pictures of Antichrist. Adolf Hitler, Antiochus Epiphanes, all of these different historical characters are pictures and types. And we learn little bits and pieces about who the ultimate end times enemy will be. And Nimrod, I think, was the first. And so that's why there is some level of a connection there with Nimrod. So now that we understand who Nimrod was and what he was trying to do, 
And there's some of my notes there. I guess I didn't know I already had those up there. So let me move on. Here we go, the Tower of Babel. Now let's talk about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was not a technological attempt to reach outer space. I know we laugh about that, guys, but I mean, I can remember just as a young kid, you know, I'm reading and I'm thinking, man, they're trying to build a tower in the heaven. Okay? I think the tallest skyscraper on the earth today, well, I'll get to that in just a second. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let's, let's, look, at, let's look at Genesis 11 now. So now we kind of have a, a foundation. So uh, Nimrod's introduced in Genesis 10. Now Genesis 11 gives us the up-close and personal account of what really happened in Babel. Look at Genesis 11. Let's read verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Of the earth. So what was happening here? What was this tower all about? Well, it was not a technological attempt to reach outer space. They weren't trying to build a skyscraper through that earth's atmosphere. It was not a launching pad for some type of a rocket launch for the ancient aliens to land. Those things I do not think have anything, there's nothing in view for them to be out and floating around or going to Mission to Moon or Mission to Mars or anything like that. That's not the proper perspective. What we have here, guys, is there's a, this is a, the Shanghai Tower in China. This is the second highest building in the world. I think it's over like 2,100 feet, something just unbelievable. Uh, this is the Bahaj Khalifa or something like that. It's in Dubai. Tallest skyscraper on the planet, uh, 2,700 feet. That's kind of a cool picture because it looks like its, its top is in the what? It kind of looks like it's in the clouds, right? That's not what this was about, guys. Okay? That's a, a, a rendering of the Tower of Babel. Some of you may see these things where it's kind of like a, a spiral tower that's getting higher and higher and higher as it gets up into the clouds. Guys, I don't think that has anything to do with what's happening here. Okay, not an attempt to get into outer space, but rather this is what the Tower of Babel was all about. It was to interact with and worship the evil principalities and rulers in heavenly places. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about. It was a temple complex. It was the centerpiece of the city. It was a temple complex. More than likely, the Tower of Babel looked like this. If you go through ancient architecture, you'll find out that there were ancient pyramids and there were ancient, it's called a ziggurat. You need to get familiar with what a ziggurat is. I'm going to inform you a little bit more today because we're going to see evidence all over the world that there was an or, a point of origin for a pagan heathen worship and it all goes back and traces back to Babylon and the Tower of Babel. Now, if you're ever reading your Bibles and you read those passages that talk about that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against what? Yes, we know the Scripture. Principalities and powers and the evil, wicked rulers who are operating in the heavenly places. And there's the thrones and dominions and and authorities and rulers. Who are these beings that Paul and Jesus talk about? Who are these principalities? Who is the prince of Persia? When you're reading the book of Daniel and the, 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 the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel, and he's like, hey, Daniel, I would have come a little bit sooner if it had not been for who? 
The prince of Persia, he held me up. We're fighting for 21 days, man. Who is the prince of Persia? Who are these, who are these principalities? Well, that, that's exactly what's happening here at the Tower of Babel. You see, here's what they were trying to do. Here's what I believe Nimrod and the people, the rebellious people on the earth were trying to do at Bower. They're trying to create a man-made mountain. A man-made mountain. Now, what, what is significant about a mountain? If you remember our study in uh, the chapter about the Garden of what? Eden. The Garden of Eden was a, it was a mountain. The book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah tells us that. We see the, the city of God coming down as the New Jerusalem. It is a great and high mountain. Zion will be lifted up above all the mountains on the earth when Jesus Christ Returns And so the Garden of Eden, paradise itself, was established on a high mountain. And then when you see the idolatry and the pagan rebellion of the Israelites, guys, and you're reading through the Old Testament, where did they always go to set up their altars to the pagan gods? They took them up on the what? The high places, up on the mountains. There's a reason why they did that, because in ancient thought and in ancient culture, you believed that mountains were sacred places and that you could have a a meeting, an intersection with the spiritual realm if you would go up on these sacred places and you were able to interact with these other spiritual beings or heathen gods or whatever it may be that they're trying to interact with. And so that's what the Tower of Babel was all about. It was about creating sacred space, not so that they could get to heaven, but so that they could bring the spiritual beings of heaven down. They wanted to meet with the gods. There's only one problem with that. The Most High wasn't invited. That's what makes the Tower of Babel so terrible. They wanted to meet with all the other principalities and powers and rulers and thrones and dominions and even Satan himself, I believe. But there was one God who was not invited to the Tower of Babel and his name is Yahweh the Lord. The Most High God was not invited and that's what makes the Tower of Babel so very profane. And that's why the Lord, Yahweh, is called the God of gods and the Lord of Lords. He is the most high. He is the one true and living God. Now let me just share with you something from the book of Isaiah. As we studied the origin of the serpent, Satan himself, I believe Isaiah gives us a picture of the fall and the pride and the, uh, the arrogance of Satan. But did you know that Isaiah 14 is also an oracle against the king of Babylon. There's a connection. So there is a, there's a human ruler in view here in Isaiah 14, but there's also a supernatural prince who's in view here who we, we know of as Satan. But think about what is said here in Isaiah 14. Listen to verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, there's a connection here of the same pompous, arrogant, prideful attitude of Satan himself is seen here with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Is it basically saying we are trying to interact and engage with these other spiritual beings and we're trying to in, in, create a, a level, a place of intersection, sacred space so that we can get something, we can worship, we can interact with. Maybe they will give us power. Maybe they will, they will give us what we need. Maybe they'll take care of us, whatever it may be. That's how pagan worship works. It's like, I give you a little something, you give me a little something. That's why the sacrifices were so important in pagan idolatry is because as they sacrificed humans and they sacrificed other uh, people on behalf of the, of the nation, then they thought the gods would do something for them. It's, it's a perverted system of religion, but that's what happened and that's what was happening, I believe, right here at the Tower of Babel. Now, if you don't believe that this was a better representation of the Tower of Babel, then we have to deal with the evidence that's left all around the world. Remember what I told you last week? 
we see the different cradles of civilization, they all began to emerge at the very same time. And they all had one thing in common, pagan idolatry. And they all had things like this. This is in the Middle East. Interesting. This is in Egypt. Of course, you have the great Gaza pyramid there. Guys, these are pagan temple complexes. This is in India. You can see the architecture. There's similarities. All of them have their own little twists and their own little you know, unique character style, but these are all different pieces of ancient temple pagan complexes that are so connected and that points to an original source. This is in Asia. Again, the, the ziggurat form, the pyramid style. This is also in Asia. And then again, when you get on the internet and you begin to look at all these, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things all over the world. This is, I think, uh, up in Peru. This is in South America. This is in Mexico. You see the pyramid structure, the temple complex. Again, in Mexico, look at these things. Guys, do you know what was happening on these things? They were sacrificing humans. They were killing human beings to appease the gods. That's what was happening. This is in Mexico. Look at that thing. Massive. And so that's why all of these different ziggurats, these temples, these pyramids all over the world, guys, they point to a point of origin, a source of origin. And that's what was happening here with the Tower of Babel. Now, let's talk about what God did and how he interacted and what, what his plan was. Two things that we need to remember about Genesis 11. Number one is that in confusing the languages, this was actually God's act of what? It was mercy. You say, well, well, how is that mercy? I thought this was judgment. Well, we'll get to the judgment part in just a second. But there was first an act of mercy. Now, let's think about this for just a second. They're building a temple to invite the gods to come down. Who was not invited? The Most High, the one true God. Don't you know they were surprised the day that he what? He came down. Notice that. Isn't that what the text says? It says, then the Lord what? Came down. I think he came down right there, probably at the temple or at the tower, right there in the city. And he said, you're looking for all of these other gods. You're looking to interact with all of these other false gods. But I'm going to come down as the one true God because I've got a problem with what you're doing. I'm about to intervene and stop this project. And whether they believed it or not, is that in coming down and in stopping the building of the Tower of Babel and confusing the languages and dispersing the nations, this is what God was saying. I'm going to give you a little more time. I'm giving you mercy right now because if I let you continue to do what you're doing, nothing will be impossible for you to do. This is just the beginning of what you're going to do. And you're going to be in the very same predicament that you were in before the flood. And I'm going to have to destroy you all over again. And so in coming down, they must have been surprised. And so because I've often asked myself, God is omniscient. He doesn't have to physically come down to see what's going on, right? That's not what this text is about. Of course, God knew what was going on. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He wanted to make an appearance. He wanted to come down. I believe he came in physical form, came down to there into the temple right there at the Tower of Babel and said, Hey, guys, we're going to stop this right now. That's what's happening because he had to keep them from the self-destructive behavior and the trajectory of the path that they were on because they were only going to destroy themselves because they're trying to build a name for themselves. They're trying to build a kingdom for themselves. They're trying to do this in defiance and in opposition to God. So this was an act of mercy. So he derailed their project. He prevented them from destroying themselves again. And so God was basically buying them more time, and he had another plan, right? I mean, that was, he had another plan anyway, and so he said, I've got to put it into this in order to accomplish my plan. And so this is why we look at something like the Tower of Babel, guys, and this is, isn't just a, uh, you know, just a small issue that you read about in the Bible. This is a significant turning, pivotal turning point in the biblical narrative. In the whole story of redemption, this is significant. Don't miss that. But their rebellion did not come without consequence. 
So God did show them mercy, and he did buy the human race more time, and he did spread the nations out all over the earth. Okay? But as I shared with you last week, there was a judgment that came with Babel. God gave the people, the nations, what they, what they wanted and what they deserved. You want to interact with these other gods? You want to worship in pagan idolatry? You want to have a relationship with all of these lesser gods who are cruel and unjust and immoral and they're going to teach you all kind of wicked practices and rituals and all the occult witchcraft and black magic and all the human sacrifices and all the sexual immorality? And if that's what you want, unfortunately, that's what you're going to get. And that's why when we look at every single pagan civilization on the face of the earth from the very beginning, that is what characterizes them. That's what, to this day. To this very day. And so there was a level of judgment. And so as I share with you, I'm not going to go into great detail because I shared a lot about this last week, but it's an act of judgment. The Lord handed them over to the nations, handed the nations over to these other gods, the authority of the other gods. And you can go and look at those scripture references if you want. But I want to show you a, a kind of a, a cross reference in Deuteronomy chapter four that I think is pretty significant because as we talked about last week and we'll get into here in just a second, uh, there was a unique nation that the Lord chose for himself at the very same time. And he began that nation with a man named Abraham. And we're going to see about Abraham here in just a second. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now Deuteronomy, again, Moses is still giving instructions to the children of Israel. He's preparing them to go into the what? To the promised land. And he's kind of giving them their last instructions, the, the, the re-giving, the second giving of the law. And he's reminding them who they are. He's reminding them of how powerful he was to deliver them from the gods of Egypt, to take them out of the hands of Pharaoh, to, to show his great works and wonders. So this is the book of Deuteronomy. Look at what he says in chapter 4. Verse 15. Therefore, so, so the Lord, the Most High, is talking to His people. These are His people, right? The, the Jews, the, the Israelites are different, supposed to be different than all the other nations. He says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, out of the midst of fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image of yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of any male or female, of any animal that's on the earth, or the, any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the sea. Now, you know what he's describing? Pagan idolatry. Amen. That's what they do. They worship the fish and the birds and their ancestors. and That's what they do. They worship nature. Now look at, yeah, they worship the creation instead of the creator. Now look at what he says in verse 19. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars. Wow, now we're already back to Nimrod, right? The sun god. The goddess of the moon. So the, the Ashtara, I mean, you, you, the Baal, they're all connected. These are all of these fallen, false gods. And this is what he says. Beware when you, when you lift your eyes to heaven, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Did you catch that? He's like, I didn't give them to you. I've given them, I've allotted them to all the other nations. Don't be like the other nations. You're to be my people. I'm to be your God. We're to be unique and distinct and holy and set apart from the rest of the world. That's what the Lord is talking about here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. Now I want to say something about this particular judgment. When the sons of God rebelled in Genesis 6 and they interacted with human wives and they produced the Nephilim and all the, just all the terrible things they were doing before the flood, I do not believe that this is the same group. And I'll tell you why. Because everything that we read about the fallen angels in Genesis 6 who transgressed and did what they did, 
the Bible says they are now being what? Held in chains of gloomy darkness in Tartarus, in the holding place, in the bottomless pit. They can't, they're not able to be released for activity anymore. They're being judged right now. They're being held. So they don't have a chance to do this. So this has to be another group. And that's where we get the biblical foundation for the principalities and powers and rulers and dominions and authorities in the heavenly places. That's where this group comes from. And they were also rebellious. I don't know how many there are. Maybe there's 70. I don't know. But this is a different group. So there was mercy, but there was also judgment. Now let's talk about Abram. It is so amazing to me that when you have a good solid foundation of the biblical story of redemption, you read your Bible differently. Because there's no mistake that right after this happened and all the nations were dispersed and handed over to these other gods and they're living in rebellion and pagan idolatry, in Genesis 12, the very next chapter, we are introduced to a new man. What's his name? Abraham. Guess where Abraham was living? Babylon. Abraham says he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Do you know what Joshua said about Abraham and his fathers? They were pagan idolaters. They were doing the very same thing that Nimrod and all the uh, rebellious people in the nations of the earth, they were all caught up in that same pagan idolatry. And God went to Babylon, the very place, the very center of satanic rebellion on the earth, and he says, I'm going to choose one of theirs and bring him what? Bring him out. And show him a new land and make him into a new people and make them into a new nation, which has became the children of Israel. Guys, it is amazing when you begin to see how the Bible unfolds before our very eyes. And so he brings, he calls, he saves, he chooses Abram out of Babylon to be a blessing to all people of the earth through his offspring. And of course, today, what the best news that I have for you today is that by faith, we can become children of Abraham participating in the same promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the children of Israel by us being Gentiles through faith in in Jesus Christ, we become children of Abraham. We become incorporated into his nation, into his family. That's the beautiful picture of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's one more thing that you've got to see that's the, the clearest connection between the Tower of Babel, and what we see in the New Testament. And that's Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts 2. So think about everything that we just learned about what was happening at Babel. And now let me read to you the account of Pentecost. Now have Babel in your mind. Think about what just happened. Think about what they were trying to do. Think about how the Lord intervened. Think about the consequences of their sin. Now look at what happened in Acts chapter 2. Don't tell me there's not a direct connection. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Acts 2.1, they were all together in one place. How does that sound? Sound familiar? What was happening at Babel? All together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it lifted the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Listen to this. Because it's the Feast of Pentecost. This is one of the three times during the Jewish calendar where all the men of Israel were called to come back to Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. It says now where they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So at Babel, where all the languages were confused, now here at Pentecost, they're hearing and understanding the language. Fascinating. Look at what it says. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in our native tongue? Parthians. Now look, now he starts to list nations. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. 
Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And of course, others mocked them and said, they are being filled with new wine. Now flip to the very end of Acts 2. Look at what it says. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number that day those who were being saved. I think there were 3,000. Yeah, verse 41. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about what? 3,000 souls. So look at the, the parallels here between Babel and the fulfillment of the coming of the Holy Spirit as Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been resurrected from the dead. And this is the beautiful part about Pentecost. Of course it was the perfect time because if if all the Jews from all of these different nations... Now remember, the gospel is for the Jew first and then who? The Gentiles. So it was only appropriate that the first believers in Yeshua the Messiah were Jewish. So they're Jews from the diaspora. They're coming from being spread out all, of the, all over the uh, world of these different nations. They come back to Pentecost. They hear the good news of the gospel about Jesus in their own what? Language. Guess what happened after Pentecost? They went back home. And they took the good news and their transformed lives with them pronouncing the gospel to all of their homeland, to all of the other nations. This is the fulfillment. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. This is the exact reversal. Now, we don't know for sure how many people were alive during the building of the Tower of Babel, but the the genetic uh, markers and the genetic studies that I've seen will tell you, guys, there probably weren't that many people alive. The Babel was about 150 years removed from the flood. There couldn't have been that many people on the face of the earth. You know what my guesstimation is? About 3,000. They've said, according to the genetic studies, there couldn't have been more than a few thousand people probably alive starting this building project at the Tower of Babel. My guesstimation, when we get to heaven, one of the questions I think we'll learn is that about 3,000 people were living in rebellion at the Tower of Babel as the Lord spread them out all over the world. And guess how many were saved on the day of Pentecost? About 3,000 people. That's the way God works. And so guys, you see that we're called as His people to be participants in the kingdom, to make disciples of all nations, and that we are living in the times of the Gentiles. And the Bible says there will come a point when the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. And then Jesus Christ will turn his attention to the people of Israel and he'll come deliver the Jews specifically from the Antichrist. Amen. All of it's connected. Now I'm going to ask our worship team and our praise team to come up and here's my, here's my takeaway for you today. What's the language of God? Love. I heard love. But you can't leave out the what? The truth. How do we communicate the language of God? Think about it. What does this world need to hear? The world needs to hear the language of God. Well, if we're all love and no truth, guys, we err. If we're all truth on this side and no love, we also what? We also err. That's why the Bible in Ephesians chapter 4 says that we're called to speak the what? The truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ came full of what? Grace and truth. So if we're going to be communicators of the Word of God, we're going to be communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are going to speak the language of God to a lost and dying world, listen guys, there are people, millions of people all around us every day who are still under the control and the power and the influence of principalities and powers in heavenly places. They're bound. They're deceived. They're living in darkness. 
They're living in unbroken sin. God is calling you and me to share the living hope and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, speaking the language of truth. But we have to do it in what? You do it in love. If you speak the truth in love, you can't go wrong. So if you haven't taken anything else away from this Genesis study, I hope and pray that as we move forward, as we continue to navigate the interesting, challenging times that we're living in, that we will never forget what God's call is on our life, is to share the gospel, speaking the truth in love, and continue to go and make disciples of all nations. Amen? Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We're going to sing one more song, a powerful song. And I just want to preface it by saying this. Some of us right now, we're harboring hatred, immorality, unforgiveness, shame, pride, you name it. We're harboring things in our heart that is polluting our heart, contaminating our heart. Jesus wants you to be clean. The Bible says if you confess your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I pray and beg you today, wherever you are, whatever you brought in here, don't walk out the same way. Make sure that you confess your sin. You, You reach and you seek and you search for the mercies of God that are new every single morning and allow the cleansing power of Christ to overwhelm you and forgive you and give you what you need the most. Amen? So as we sing this song, I want you to stand, and I want you to sing, but I want you to do business with the Lord. Let's stand together as I pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us the language of God, that we are the children of God. So we're supposed to speak your language to all people, speaking the truth in love. Thank you for the great gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, praise God also for the Gentile. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you today in the wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said.